as we practice together through these days. I think we quite naturally become more attuned, more sensitive, more aware of the nature of our experience, of what's happening. And the, as we become aware of our experience, as we're more able to be present, to connect and reconnect again, moment by moment through the days, we, I think, can sense and become more clearly touched by the aspects of our lives that sometimes we don't quite attend to so fully. And we may notice the, the sense of both fragility and preciousness that pervades living existence. We can be touched by the, the beauty and the delightfulness as we were being invited last night with uh, River's lovely talk and that sense of seeing what uplifts the heart. We notice this, we see how the preciousness of life, the beauty of life touches us when we're more able to pause and receive and let it in when we're present to it. But we also perhaps sense its fragility the very fragility of our attention to be able to notice what's going on. The natural world reveals this in so many ways. Preciousness and fragility, in a sense, go together. The plants, the creatures, ourselves, we partake of this. And sometimes, of course, it comes to us with some strength, some force and we we sense, we hear, we feel, we're very much compelled to be aware of this in the the context of the the COVID nineteen pandemic, the the fragility of our world and our communities and our our species, our, our human beings. We see how suddenly what was comfortable and apparently safe is no longer just human contact. And yet in seeing that we also notice, I think, that the profound tragedy of the loss of life, the loss of contact for those who are still alive. And we can feel this deeply. And of course in the the larger context of our world at this time, the very vulnerability of our, our planet and our living systems, our ecology, our climate, is under pressure, under threat. And that fragility also shows to us or helps us and reminds us to see how it's precious. It's not just a casual thing that living beings, ourselves, or whole ecosystems are threatened. And this is an expression or an aspect of, of what lies at the heart of this human experience. This sensitivity, this capacity to be affected, to be touched, and also to respond. 
to have a response to this. The sense of fragility or preciousness doesn't exist just outside us in that which we see as precious, fragile. Nor does it exist just subjectively as somehow ourself perceiving in that way. There's something true about it. But it is revealed in the relatedness, the connection that we form. And we're so sensitive as human beings. Our systems respond in so many ways. I just went out for a short run just now, feeling my body a bit heavy and needing to to move a little. And I became aware, as soon as I was running, of a lot of tightness in my abdomen, which I could tell, actually, I'd sort of been aware of earlier, but I hadn't quite noticed, as perhaps happens to us sometimes. And I realized that at some level, for myself at least, when I'd done the swab test this morning, my whole system goes into quite strong protest. Um, and some of what was still holding my abdomen from the, the sort of the, <laughs> you probably don't want the details, but gagging and that sort of, ah, oh, you know, some of you may have that experience. A friend of mine who'd had his tonsils out said, doesn't seem to bother him. He can stick a sort of a, a brush down there and shake it around. And, but my tonsils say, don't touch me. And if you do, I'm going <laughs> to possibly you know, lose my breakfast. Sorry, I have given you the details. Um, but it's like, oh, and it's not just what happened then. It's like actually my system was still sort of guarded and protected and stressed. So I was just with that and breathing through that as I was running and... Um, just feeling that sense of, wow, sensitivity, human being. That's how we are, isn't it? Sometimes we carry things not just from the morning, but from days, weeks, years, decades, maybe lifetimes previously. And this reality, this experience, this existence that we are exploring, that we are engaging with, this is in a way framed by this aliveness that we experience, is framed by this sense of being touched, being impacted, being impinged upon. And of course, of course, we don't necessarily think about that because it's just what happens. It's been going on as long as we can remember and probably from before then. In fact, certainly from before then. And so we just find ourselves emerging into existence, into life, trying to manage this condition. And to a large extent, we are trying, we find ourselves to get or to stay comfortable, to avoid that which is uncomfortable, which is difficult, which impinges on us. And yet we can't. We can't. No one succeeds at this. Everyone tries. It's so human. And in a certain way, just to reflect upon this, you know, our sensitivity to temperature. It's human body. Like I was a little bit hot coming in from the right. I didn't run that far or very fast, but... It's kind of warm and I haven't been running much recently. So I was like, whoa, and I'm hot. And of course, that's just a little bit hot on the outside. But we know that on the inside, you know, we've only got a two or three degrees range in centigrade at least from where it's normal to a little bit too hot, really unwell. A little bit below that, a couple of degrees, really unwell. A couple more degrees, and, you know, four or five degrees at the core of our body in either direction and we're dead. It's that sensitive a system. It doesn't function outside of this narrow range of temperature. You can manage a little bit more on the outside, but on the inside it's like that. And our our minds and our hearts are kind of similar, actually. Now, how easy it is for a few words to impact us. 
you know, to reflect on this. How careful we are sometimes, how concerned we are sometimes with the interactions we have because we can impact others and we can be impacted. There's a wonderful story that illustrates this of a, <coughs> of a samurai warrior who's walking in, the, in an old village in Japan in the you know, centuries past, we would imagine. And the, the warrior, a proud spiritual battle, sort of battler through his life, he, he comes across a, a small Zen monk, a, a woman sitting in her robes on the corner of the on the corner of the intersection and the samurai comes up and says huh, monk in the Zen tradition monk applies to any gender of uh, monastic monk you are a holy being can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell and the small woman looks up at Look at it, looks up at the samurai and says, Hmm, samurai, your robes are dirty. You smell bad. And your sword is rusty. You are a disgrace, samurai. Why should I talk to you? And the samurai is enraged by this little pipsqueak sitting on the road, insulting him. And he pulls out his sword and he's just about to take off her head with one blow and she looks up and says that's hell and suddenly he realizes oh my gosh oh wow to be overwhelmed by anger and hatred and the sensitivity to a an insult a few words to be willing to kill someone <laughs> not just someone a zen monk a holy person and he's completely filled with contrition and sorrow but also gratitude it's like wow this little being risked their life, literally, to teach me a lesson about what I'd asked. And suddenly he's just smiling and he's so filled with love and appreciation. He's beaming down at the little um, Zen monk and she looks up and she says, that's heaven. And it's, I think, a beautiful teaching just about what heaven and hell is really about in terms of where our hearts are, but also about our sensitivity as human beings. And that's why it's hard for us to handle the forces of our lives and our minds and our bodies and our hearts because of that sensitivity. And for some of us, and perhaps many of us, to differing degrees, we at times in our lives will have had that sensitivity impacted in ways that were overwhelming for us. Ways that were beyond what our system was really able to handle, to regulate, to digest, to manage. And when we're really young, as infants, as, as babies, as in our, in our early years, we need support to handle what happens. We need the, uh, the parenting persons, the adults hopefully who are caring for us and the sort of the mothering function which may be the literal biological mother but maybe others also we need them to help us handle that but they're not always there and they don't always know what's going on or what to do so often 
and pretty much for everyone, even if we had quite a good deal with our parents and not everybody did, but even if we had that, there will have been times when our system got overwhelmed and we can't quite handle it. It kind of like it's sort of like having too much electricity go through a circuit board. It blows the circuit. And what happens is it's as if the sense of awareness of being here of consciousness is annihilated. For an infant, they have no idea that there'll be something after this. It's just this is it. This is where I am. And and it's profoundly overwhelming. That's what overwhelm is. And for most of us, we carry that imprint of that having happened in smaller or not so small ways in our very early times as human beings. And what happens when we encounter something difficult or scary is that it feels like it might be going to overwhelm me. And our association with overwhelm is actually annihilation. At a psychological level, it's the sense of me gone, poof. And no prospect of return. Because this is before there's any memory or continuity in that sense. And so a lot of our response to what feels threatening or difficult or challenging is being sort of amplified and intensified by this survival mechanism that's trying to avoid being annihilated. It's really understandable from that point of view. And yet... We also need to understand it in a way that allows us to hold it, to not be driven by the reactivity it generates, to not be overwhelmed by the charge that might arise with it. As adults, we have much greater capacity to handle, to hold charge, to hold experience. But the fear that arises doesn't always know that and trust that. And so part of what's going on is at a certain level we're trying to avoid the replication of what happened to us when we were little. And we might ask ourselves as a question for our lives. And it's certainly something that I wrestled with myself as a sort of in my sort of, I guess probably primarily teens and twenties without having any frameworks of understanding the, the biology, the psychology or anything of spirituality to support me in it but that sense of you know, how much fear is in my life and you know, the question that we might ask ourselves how much of our lives, how much of our choices how many of our actions are born out of the attempt and the effort to avoid what we fear to escape what seems to threaten us with something that we imagine or believe may overwhelm us and we react to as if it would annihilate us. Sometimes it happens when we're practicing and there's a little bit of pain in our body. And, and sometimes it's really appropriate to respond to pain, as we've said, and I hope you've heard us clearly say, you know, sometimes we need to make a change in the posture. But... Sometimes what happens is there's a twinge in the knee and it's sort of like, ouch, and it's like, oh, gosh, I wonder if something really bad is going to happen. And it just takes a moment for our mind to go, oh, 
bad knee. Oh, oh my gosh. You know, and suddenly there's this image of being carried out of the meditation hall into the ambulance and the amputation and the, the life in the wheelchair thereafter. And it's like, wow, how quickly our mind goes from pain to profound tragedy. And what happens in that, of course, is that we stop paying attention to what's actually happening. We go into the mind that amplifies. So we can't actually give attention to what's happening to see do I need to take care of this? Because I'm trying to grapple with a future or an outcome that hasn't happened yet rather than attending to what's here. And so it's really useful to turn towards, to come into contact with and to see what's happening and to notice, oh, if fear arises. What that's like as an experience. Uh, Mark Twain once uh, very famously observed, he said, Apparently, he said, anyway, I wasn't there. Um, he said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. And it's the, f- it's the fear that arises around the possibility that it might that actually becomes that worst experience. And this is understandable. This isn't something wrong, but we need to understand it. It's like sometimes in meditation, things are quieting, they're calming, we're starting to feel, ah, okay, this is nice, it's a little less busy or a little less noisy in here. And then suddenly the mind notices that it didn't think for a moment. It goes, oh, that's peaceful and calm. And then the next moment it's like, what if I never have another thought? And suddenly it's scary. What if I've lost that? Of course, you've noticed it's having plenty of thoughts while it's thinking about whether it might never think again. But it's like we get scared and we move away from something, in this case, simply unfamiliar. Just in case you're wondering, I've never heard it reported by someone that their thinking stopped during meditation. That happens, but didn't start again. It, it generally comes back, it's pretty reliable, sometimes before you want it to. Um, but on the other hand, we're not here to bring the thinking to an end, as we've reflected and observed. And so what we're asked to do with this is turn towards it, as we've spoken in different ways, to see that fear is an experience that's always happening right now in the present. It seems to generate an image or project a story of what will happen in the future. And it could be a verbal, linguistic, conceptual story, or it could just be an image and and a sense of a picture, or both together. And it's like, it's sort of like we go into that movement into the future and we lose contact with what's happening here. And the practice invites us to turn back towards it and check and see what's happening to give it space, to soften the tightening that happens. We can't always just get it to soften. We can't make it soften. No, I, I, I breathe through this contraction in my abdomen. It doesn't soften particularly quickly. But at least by breathing through it, it starts to move a little and open a little. And, ah, oh, okay, there's some space again. But it's also giving it space, not pressing it or pushing it to try and do that. And any place where we tighten out of that sense 
of fear, that reaction of feeling under threat and danger. So good just to turn and notice, oh, okay, it's tightened. Can I feel? Can I breathe? Can I soften? Can I allow? But without demanding that it's relax or that it release or that it soften, because it might not yet be able to. But at least we start to sense it and start to contact it. And we can so also can be so useful and helpful to bring that sense of kindness that we've also been speaking about. That sense of, oh, oh wow. You know, it's like it's almost like, oh wow, this bit's really scared right now. Well, this bit's desperately holding on to try and protect. It doesn't need to, but it thinks it does. It's like, huh, okay, it's trying to help me out. It's rather than, why won't it let go? Sort of, "Mm." oh, you better let go, you know. It's more like, ah, ah, look, you try to help. Oh, thanks. (laughs) You know, you're welcome to take a break any (laughs) time. And and that, because that's what our body's doing. It's actually on our side. But sometimes... And of course, when I say body, it's our mind as well that's doing this. It's our mind-body. But it's not always fully awake to comprehending and in touch with the whole of what's happening. And so if we bring some kindness, that can help hold that, that, that movement in the heart of fear. And just soothe and allow space for. Because what we notice is if we pull back, and that's what we tend to do with fear, with something uncomfortable, we pull back, trying to avoid, withdraw from. The world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And we keep moving away, and it's something we do in our world so much, moving away from that which is scary or difficult. And actually, because it's the fear and the reaction itself that we're really struck, that impacts us. That's within us. It's not out there. We can't withdraw from that. So that then impacts on the smaller world that we're inhabiting by not going out. It's like if it's raining and we choose never to go out in the rain, we're stuck indoors. How much of the day? How much of the year? We can't go out. And then what's in the house? And what, even though we're dry and warm, it starts to feel a bit like, mm, don't like it in here either. Because that, don't like it hasn't gone away. So this process of just opening to, if it's okay to get a little wet, to get a little cold, to be a little uncomfortable sometimes, seeing we can't avoid being impacted and we can't actually separate ourselves from the world that touches us because it's, it's inside, it as much, inside us as much as it's outside of us. That's the nature of the experience. It seems to be outside, but it's being felt inside. And we can't separate that. And so that sense of opening to our experience, it's like we, in the practicing of softening, of allowing the body's tendency to shrink in, to pull in, to widen, to soften, to open, It's like we learn to step out of the armoring and the defensiveness that we've unconsciously developed in an endeavor to self-protect. And that we might notice in this this, this sort of the the world of, of, again, masks and that sort of keeping distance. It's like, do we notice whether we physically tighten up as well? 
because yeah it's important to wear masks and keep distance in the circumstances where that will be protective but do we also tighten because that doesn't actually do anything to help our our well-being or anyone else's yeah, it's so unconscious and compelling sometimes So there's these different challenges that we work with, that we explore, the sensitivity and the way we respond to it, where unconsciously, habitually, we tighten and contract. But with consciousness, with care, with kindness, we begin to soften, to open, to allow ourselves to touch and be touched. And we we see that there's often another layer of experience or perception and conclusion that's wrapped around this, which is that Often when it's difficult, when it's painful, when something's unwanted or unwelcome, we very easily think it's somebody's fault. That it's like this. It shouldn't be like this. Now, a friend of mine has a little notice in her, in her toilet in, in New Zealand where I, well, I used to be able to go and visit every few years. Um, that's where I come from. And uh, <laughs> I shouldn't complain about that. I'm really glad that they're safe and protected but I was anyway um, remembering my friend and what it says is and it's great given my response to the fact that I can't go to New Zealand that I've just noticed arising um, is there isn't any reason why things should be different than they are that's what it says in her toilet and you get to sit and contemplate it while you're doing your business there isn't any reason why things should be different than they are It's not to say they couldn't be different if things were different, but they're not, if you follow. And yet we so strongly and easily tend to blame something, someone, for it. There's a saying that comes from the Stoic tradition, a wisdom maxim, you could say, from that ancient Greek sort of philosophical wisdom tradition that goes like this. It says... Those who have not learned blame others. Those who are learning blame themselves. Those who have learned blame no one. And I think it's a really beautiful, concise sort of way of understanding. We, of course, at different times will occupy all those places. Sometimes it's like, I don't like it. Who made this? Who did that? Why is it like this? Sometimes it's more like we see, oh, I have some responsibility for what's going on here. But too easily then, we, as we become self-aware, we start to feel like, oh, I'm the cause of all of this. And that's not true either. Although we may have some responsibility, we're not in control or in charge of it. And in the deeper understanding that can come, we see that actually... No one is to blame, not ourself, not another. And yet that doesn't mean there isn't still a responsibility and a possibility for seeing what can be contributed here by ourselves, by others. When we somehow imagine it's my fault, it's so hard to bear, it's so painful. And one of the important reasons we have the group meetings rather than just individual meetings from my perspective at least, is we get to hear each other 
and perhaps we hear and see and recognize that actually we all have difficult places at least some of the time and although our difficult places might be difficult maybe different than someone else's difficult places actually what it's like to have difficult places is kind of the same for all of us and that it's actually a shared experience what we struggle with what's painful what's challenging to us is often most difficult to take in and to open to because we form the view or the conclusion that somehow it's because I've done it wrong. And our society gives us the message, well, if you just get it right and do it right, then everything will be great all the time, won't it? Like the people on the advertisements or whatever, for whatever they're selling you to make you feel good all the time. It's like that message is profoundly unhelpful. Because the truth is we all experience that which is difficult. And when it's not just me or mine, it's something shared, then rather than being separated, feeling separate because of what we struggle with, whether it be pain in our body, our hearts, our minds, our lives, our world, rather than feeling somehow disconnected due to that, because when we judge or blame others or ourselves, we actually tighten, contract and withdraw and then we feel separate and disconnected. When we see the nature of things includes these experiences. Inevitably for all of us and there's a softening of that judging, criticizing, blaming tendency. Again, not judging or blaming the criticism or the tendency to judge because that happens too. But as it softens, then there's actually the possibility that we find a deeper sense of connection through our shared participation in what is not easy. Because that vulnerability and being subject to what is not easy is the same capacity and aspect of us that also allows us to be touched by what is beautiful, by what is remarkable, by what is precious. To see that it's not you or me or them, it's us. It's us here in this situation. And the Buddha the Buddha spoke of this. And you know, again, as I think both River and I already mentioned some you know, briefly touched on this thing about sounds like Buddhism talks a lot about the bad stuff, the you know, the unhappy stuff, the miserable stuff. But it's like because we need to understand that it's there and what, how to handle it skillfully. Now the Buddha talked about the fact that we can't avoid this. He talked about the body being subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. And it's sort of like, hmm, yeah, I know, but do we really have to focus on that? And I used to always think, the Buddha always spoke it seemed like he had a very methodical linear tracking mind and I always thought birth, ageing, sickness, death I got sick long before I started to feel like I was ageing why is it in that order? and it was some time later that's the original translation that I and many of you might have heard I I heard another translation which said the body is subject to birth, ageing, decay and death and I thought ah yeah I get that decay, that happens a little later, 
you know, well, tooth decay happens quite early, but um, that sense of sickness isn't things go a bit wrong and then you get better. It's things go a bit wrong and that's how it is from now on. And the journey of ageing is one in which that just keeps happening. And if you haven't encountered it yet, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> but not many of us get to go that far in our journey without starting to bump into it. And the Buddha spoke also of sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. And it's like, mm, yeah, oh. And in this context we sometimes think, well, surely, okay, my body is subject to birth and ageing and decay and death, but surely if I lived this life well then I wouldn't experience these things. Surely I could find a way to do it the right way and not have any of that. That's not so. And I just offer as a simple way that this makes compelling sense to me that might help you see how it's, it's pretty much part of all of our lives. It will be in different ways. If in this life you love something or someone, at some time you will be parted from that that person, that thing, that situation. Through intention, through accident, through death. It will happen, that parting. And that will be painful, grievous, sorrowful and hard to bear. And if in this life you don't love something or someone, that will be grievous, painful and hard to bear. I've thought about this often. I haven't been able to find a third option there. Anyone is welcome to let me know if they do. But it's like, ah, oh, we have a heart that loves, that has the capacity to love. And because it has the capacity to love, it will experience loss. And if we try and avoid experiencing loss by not loving, well, we get the loss straight away, because that's a loss. So this human life includes this. It must. It must. And in that including, there's a opportunity for accepting. In a sense, beginning to forgive ourselves, forgive others, forgive life for the fact that it's like this. That the, the precious body of a baby born becomes a, a slowly sort of crunchy, grunchy, achy, some of the time anyway, thing to inhabit. And that a heart can feel both exquisite sweetness and the raw devastation of loss. And it's not because you did it wrong someone else didn't get it right it's just part of how it is for us and understanding that turning towards our life embracing this aspect of life is actually a profound key to transforming the experience which doesn't mean that which is difficult goes away because it doesn't. 
but our experience of encountering it can transform profoundly. What we notice as we attend is this this quality of attention that we're cultivating, that we're developing. In a way, it's kind of like moisture being brought to the arid, the dry, the desiccated, desertified territory of our resonance with life. Because we've withdrawn from it because we don't know how to handle the fact that sometimes it hurts. So we don't inhabit it. We live in our heads, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our ideas. You know, as um, that wonderful line from James Joyce, you know, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. You know, it's like, oh, there's a cost to that. That as we get distant from and avoid some of the impact of our sensitivity, we also feel the profound loss of connection. And paying attention, it's like we start to bring moisture into the territory of where we feel separate because we've actually withdrawn from the boundary, from the margin, from the the realm in which we make contact with and are contacted by the life that is around us and that we are part of. But the contact with which is not always easy for us. And so we're inhabiting and we're feeling into this. And in a sense, it's a bit scary to begin with to really inhabit our life, our experience, our body, our heart, our mind. But it's so, so important. Three years ago, I traveled to Romania and there's a lot of a story I could tell you of that journey, but the, the key part of it was that that's where my father was born, to a, uh, a Jewish family, and he was, with his parents, sent to a concentration camp during the Holocaust, the Shoah. And he survived, although an infant, which was rare, though not unscathed by the experience. And he never talked about it or told us anything of that. What we knew a little of was from his family. But no one in his family ever went back after they eventually immigrated to Israel. And uh, I went back there because I wanted to meet whatever was of my history of that world. And it was quite remarkable because... What happened there for me, and I won't try and tell the whole story, it would be too much, was that I found a sense of a connection to where this had happened and to what had happened there. That was both horrifying, because it was like what happened here was something traumatic. A population of 10,000 people out of 20,000 gone in that town. I found my great-grandmother's gravestone in the Jewish cemetery. She died before the war. So she was buried there. And on a little plaque of my great-grandfather who had died in the camp. 
that never made it back. And what was remarkable after this visit, and again, I'm just, just saying a little of it, when I started to talk to people, I found myself saying, so when I went back to Romania, da, 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 I didn't go back to Romania. I'd never been there. And then, and then, and what happened to my family there was, I was, oh, I've never said that before. I've always said what happened to my father's family. It's like somehow I reconnected with the root that was there, but at the same time, it was like the horror of what happened was alive in me, and it was actually really quite a challenging time. But what I understood in a way that completely makes sense because I've understood it in terms of meditation practice but never in terms of that larger life circumstance was that the trade-off my father and his family made was that they cut off from that horrific experience but they lost the connection that they had to what they had as a lineage of a people who lived on a land for generations and I never had that connection and yet to receive the connection again required me to also be willing to feel the grief and the horror of why they disconnected. And for us as human beings, we have all our stories and our journeys, and there are so many that we have, many of which we don't know even, of what it was in our parents' or their parents' journeys that they couldn't hold or handle and meant therefore they couldn't hold or handle their experience or ours, perhaps, in some way. Whether we know exactly what it is or not, the practice is the same, which is to turn towards. Gently and slowly and not rushing, because sometimes we need to go very slowly, but to pay attention here, where it feels tender or raw. To pay attention here. To move with real caution. I spoke about this in one of the groups, that the, the, the way fear and anxiety arises for us, it says, Danger, and we tighten and we kind of go into what might happen if, as if we could protect ourselves by imagining the worst outcome and trying to stop it. But in fact, when we do that, we stop paying attention to where we are. The appropriate expression of that care and concern is what we could call caution, which says, oh, pay attention here, notice what's going on, move slowly, check out, is it okay? So if there's some pain in your body, just go slowly with it. Move in, sense, is it okay? Maybe it is, maybe I need to move. If there's some strong emotion present, turn towards. If it feels like it's a bit too intense, it's fine to back off. It's fine to say, oh, not now, but I'm just acknowledging oh, this is here. And we can back off without turning away and running from. And it's sort of like, that we stay facing it and saying, I know this is here, but actually right now that's not the place for me to be so close. I can take a step two back. I can go back and say, okay, I'm not feeling into it, but I know it's here. I'm not pretending it's not there. I'm not denying its existence. And that way it's still held, but at a greater distance within the awareness. And that allows the process of of a rediscovering, a trust in our capacity as human beings, as adult human beings that we didn't always have when we were little. 
to actually begin to to handle and to transform what may otherwise appear to us as something beyond our capacity or overwhelming. Because otherwise what happens is we become exiled from our home. Just as no one in my family had returned to Romania. And I I visited the house in which my father was born. And he'd never been back. And for me it was so amazing. And to come into parts of our body or parts of our experience where maybe we haven't been before. Maybe scary. But something something precious and profound can happen. Because the ground of our life, which is here, which is now, which is present, which is this, is always available to us to come back to, to return to. And yet, so far as we're unconsciously or consciously held in the grip of the view that I cannot be here while this is here or that is here then we are exiled not by the presence of what is difficult but by the conscious or unconscious view and reaction that removes us whereby we depart into the story of the past or the future into the construct of mental activity that is without the the fullness and dimensionality of our human life, our heart, our body, our spirit, our our profundity that coexists with our vulnerability, our sensitivity, and our responsiveness. And so in some ways we're practicing this in just a simple way. In the moments we come back, we reconnect, we open to the the boredom or the irritation or the discomfort or the distress in the heart and there's a way in which we might start to sense a certain soft and gentle sweetness not that it's necessarily always fun but there's something about being able to inhabit it something about the quality of what happens when we're just here with whatever is here Sometimes it's lovely and sometimes it's really not lovely. And sometimes it's really not anything at all of lovely or not. But the quality of the attention, the presence, the sensitivity and the trusting in our place within this. Trusting our capacity to receive, to embrace this moment, this experience to develop the capacity also to know how to do that usefully, skillfully, appropriately. Sometimes up close, sometimes stepping back. But it's as if the heart's capacity expands and the very sense of abiding in our heart opens up. It's like the heart is a doorway. This human, and I'm talking heart, heart, mind equally. Sometimes talk mind, sometimes say heart, but... The, the, the Buddha used the word citta, which in the Pali language that his teachings were recorded in citta, translates to me both best as heart-mind and most 
precisely described by, again, my, my teacher Ajahn Sachito. He, he says, that which is affected and responds. So rather than trying to make it into a thing and call it, is it a mind, is it a heart, is it a body? Mm-hmm. Which bit is which? It's more like, oh, there's an experience we can recognize that happens in this territory. Affected and responds. Can respond with reactivity but also can respond with sensitivity, with wisdom, with kindness. And practice is orienting us towards that responsiveness that we otherwise don't always have access to. And it's like the heart, in its expanding, it becomes open. It's like our armoring never stops life getting in. It only stops life moving through. And the opening of the heart is actually the capacity where we we start to feel our porousness, our transmissive, or yeah, our ability to transmit and to allow things to transmit through us, to resonate, to be fluid, to interchange, to intermingle with life, which is actually passing through in every moment. But when we are in resistance to it, we don't get the benefit of that as fully. Because we don't feel the connection that it's speaking to us of. And the the kind of organic, dynamic fluidity that we are part of. The okayness and the tenderness of this life. Even with all of its challenges and difficulties and distressing, painful elements. In that openness, in that flow, in that allowing ourselves to be touched and allowing life to to flow through us, we also start to sense the the totality, the vastness that we are not separate from, except in our conceiving and our habitual contracting. That as we soften, there's there's an opening, there's a discovering there's a knowing directly for ourselves as human beings not by ourselves but for ourselves of what it means truly to be a conscious and awake participant in life and there's a a natural peacefulness to this amidst the conflict and the challenges that is shared with all things, with all beings. Not something created by anything we've done. Not something obstructed by anything we forgot to do. But something maybe not yet understood, realized and recognized. Because we're so often caught in the the push and the pull to avoid or to obtain. And in the, this peaceful dimension of life, that's not separate from anything, not apart from, and yet not contained by anything either, it's in this that the heart comes to rest. It's with this that the heart is at rest. This heart, mind, being, life.
And I think this coming to rest is very much at the at the heart of what we as human beings are deeply interested in. Something truly blessed, sacred and profoundly ordinary. Let's sit together for a few moments. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to deeply know and understand the the soft open heart of life in which we come to rest for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the welfare of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.